It's an evening of old-time radio. Mystery. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. The non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Office of Samuel Spade, Private Investments. I mean, investigations. Good morning. Uh, evening. Effie? Miss Perrine is on a vacation. Perhaps I may be of assistance, no doubt. I don't know. To whom am I speaking to? I am sorry. I cannot devolve that information to an entire stranger. May I take a message? Look, uh, Miss Whoever you are, I don't want to discommode you, but... I... I am sorry, but I will have to ask you in no certain terms to resist from this line you are handing me. I am not the type secretary. Forget it. I'll just call Miss Perrine long distance and dictate my report over the phone. <gasps> oh, my stars and God, how utterly gouge of me, Mr. Spade. Oh, I'm Bernadine, Effie's relief. I, I mean yours. I could use some. Oh, shall I send out for some medicine? Yeah. The phone number's on the wall behind the water cooler. Tell them the hundred proof bonded and hang the expense. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the bail bond caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Only three days left, gals, and June, the month of weddings, will be over. But don't worry, there are still 187 days left in leap year. Still time to snag the man of your dreams. You know, the one who uses Wild Root Cream Oil on his hair. He and millions of other men use Wild Root Cream Oil daily. Because Wild Root Cream Oil grooms the hair so neatly and naturally. Relieves dryness and removes loose dandruff. Any smart man who wants to look smart always insists on Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Yes, but why? It was faith. I knew it was going to be like this. I have my qualms, too, Bernadine. Oh, that's good. I, I sent the other back. The other what? I called that number, but it was euphonious. They sent whiskey. Is something the matter? Uh, no. No, nothing at all. I'm perfectly qualm. Well, I'm glad. My previous employer was very nervous which is why I just happened to be tentatively at large when Effie reproached me about being a relief to her. Figures. Uh, Bernadine, now I'm not being fresh. Honestly, I'm not, but do you take shorthand? Yeah, but I don't speak it. 
What is that you speak? Don't answer. Uh, ready? Rodney. Uh, I mean, Roger. Uh, uh, date? I'll have to ask my mother. Down, Bernadine. Uh, date, June 27, 1948, to Miss Effie Perrine, care of Perry's Lodge, Canab, the Pearl of the West, Utah. What? Oh, uh, wrong letter. I'll get to that later. Uh, date, uh, June 27, 1948, to Leo M. Scarlett, care of Leaf Branch, Root, Knox, and Wood, attorneys at law, 333 Pine Street, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 127596. Subject, the bail bond caper. Dear Leo... I'm sorry things turned out the way they did, Leo, and I'd like you to know how I got into it. If it wasn't for the reward, I don't take rewards. I'm not in love with your wife, no matter what she says, and I wasn't sore at you about anything. I was just sitting in my office, minding my own business when the door opened, and Vivian walked in. She looked every bit as beautiful as she did when she lived under me in Ma Tuttle's boarding house in 41. In fact, I didn't recognize her until she slithered out of her mink. Hello, Sam. Surprised to see me? Uh, yeah, but I'm trying not to show it. What's on your mind? Is that all you've got to say to me, Sam? Well, you're here on business, aren't you? All right, I don't blame you. It all happened pretty sudden, Leo and me. I should have written or phoned you, I suppose, but somehow... Forget it, Vivian. Now, uh, what do you need a detective for? Are you uh, thinking of divorce already? Oh, please don't, Sam. If it was a mistake, I'm the one who has to live with it. And I made up my mind when I married Leo, this time it's for keeps. No matter what. Mm-hmm. What's the what? He's in trouble, Sam. Well, that's nothing new. Well, this time I don't think it's his fault. When Leo went legit, he meant it. What's he say he's doing now? He's a bail bond broker. Judging from your new look, I'd say he's a success. Sam, a man called him on the phone today. I answered. He said his name was Holiday, but I recognized his voice. It was an old friend of Leo's, Charlie Rosenfoy. Charlie, huh? When did he get out? A couple weeks back. He was paroled. I don't know what he said over the phone, but Leo looked scared and sick. I don't wonder. The word around town was that Charlie took the rap for Leo. And I don't know anything about that. All I know is Leo's on the level now, and Charlie never will be. He did plenty on his own during that time he served. Well, I won't argue that, but from where I sit, it looks like Leo better start wearing a gun again. He has. That's what I'm so frantic about, Sam. Did you hear any of the conversation from Leo's end? He didn't say much. But I did hear him say, All right, ten tonight, I'll meet you there. I wasn't very smart of him. I know, but that's the way he is. It might be only for a payoff. I thought of that, too. But Leo hasn't got that kind of money. He's been dropping a lot at the racetracks lately. And even if he had it, he's not the type to pay blackmail. I don't like it. Why should I stick my neck out? Why did you have to come to me anyway? Because I trust you, Sam. I know you were jealous of Leo. I was? Sam, if we ever meant anything... If you meant half the things you said to me when we... Stop it. That's blackmail. Oh, I feel so lost in the hole. I don't know where to turn. Okay, okay. I'll see what I can do. Oh, Sam. I'll make it up to you somehow. You see if I don't. Sure you will. And tell Leo to stop dropping his money at Tan Ferran. This is going to cost them plenty. Vivian. 
Marion had said that your rendezvous with Charlie was scheduled for 10 in the p.m. and that you were too upset to go to work that day, so you'd be at home, 1246 Dunbar. I took a plan in your apartment building from a sleepy lagoon-type cocktail bar across the street called, you guessed it, the Sweet Leilani. Your wife joined me, and after a while, we got around to talking. At least she did. How much you can guess what I'm thinking about? Huh? Listen, Sam. You remember that night we drove to Half Half Moon? Bay. Oh, you do remember. Oh, we used to do the craziest things. I should have married you, Sam. Please, not while I'm drinking. You know what? The trouble with crooks, they have to work day and night. Yeah. Hey, you're not listening. No, but everybody else in the place is. Let's talk about you, Sam. Did I ever tell you how I met Leo? No, and please don't. And then he opened a bucket shop. You know what a bucket shop is? Yeah. It's stockbroker. Brokerage. Yeah, that's right. Only it's crooked. That was the first business Leo started when he went legit. Mm-hmm. He had to shut it down on account of those securities. <laughs> Somebody was always stealing out of the safe. Were they insured? Yeah, but they wouldn't renew his policy. So after the second nightclub burned down and he couldn't get any insurance at all, even on his own life. That's why I'm so frantic, Sam. Hey, give me a nickel. I want to play sweet little Annie. Fifty nickels and two hours later, sweet Leilani broke under the strain, so we had Princess Papuli to leave a night gave out, and we were starting on the Hawaiian war chant when she disappeared through a door marked Wahini's, Hawaiian for powder room, and never came back. Around 9.45, I mumbled something to the bartender about the lady will pay, put on my smoked glasses, and strolled out and across the street. You came out of the building a couple of minutes later. You led me a zigzag course up Merchant Street to Salon, across Salon to Commercial, down Commercial to Drum, and made a lateral pass over Drum back to Dunbar. Your destination, I'd never have guessed it, was the Sweet Leilani. Happily, they were not playing Sweet Leilani. It was very, very quiet. The regular customers had taken a powder, and I didn't blame them. In the new crop at the bar, I counted ten broken noses, at least five broken paroles, assorted knife scars, and four pairs of cauliflower ears, and one maverick. You slid into a booth at the end of the bar, took the gun out of your shoulder holster, and laid it down on the table in front of you. I walked over, turned it around, so it was pointing at the jukebox instead of me, and sat down. Some other time, Spade. Some other time I drink with you. I'm waiting for a friend. Why the gun? You selling it to him? Maybe I give it to him. Go on, you drink at the bar. Ah, it's kind of crowded. Looks like uh, Charlie Rosenfoy's old mob. Who are they gunning for? You or Charlie? Why don't you ask them? What are you drinking, Leo? I was with that bottle all day. Got a bad taste. Do me a favor, Spade. There's a bar two doors down the street. Go drink there. There's my friend coming in the door. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine, Leo. Look, Spade. Hello, Leo. What's the matter? You bring a bodyguard to meet your old friend, Charlie? This shamus threw his weight in here. I didn't ask him. I don't need him. Huh. That sounds like the old Leo Scarlatti I used to. The name is Scarlet. Oh, pardon me. I've been on the rock for so long, it's hard to catch up on all the changes. 
There's been a war, Charlie. Anyone tipped you through it yet? You got a smart bodyguard, Leo. Let's talk. Let's go somewhere else and talk. Uh, I like it here. Okay, we start. How come you tipped the mob we were coming here? You promised you wouldn't. Like the shamas, they got a drink somewhere. All right, say what's in your mind and I'll go. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I think I'll uh, do my drinking at the bar. Both of your guns were on the table. It didn't look as though you were going to use them on one another, and I figured that neither of you was going to do much talking in front of me anyway, so I strolled back to the end of the bar to look at the television. The 10 o'clock news roundup was on, and the ticker tape that was moving across the screen said dot, dot, dot in Atlantic City today, period. I ordered a highball, and then the ticker tape started again. This time it said San Francisco, million-dollar bail bond robbery. One million dollars in negotiable bonds is tonight in the hands of a group of daring hold-up men who commandeered an armored truck at the very portals of the police department and the Hall of Justice. And it said this concludes the 10 o'clock edition of the television news roundup. I had a slight hunch that if the television boys had had their cameras on the big bail bond robbery, that at least some of the characters would have been played by at least some of the bad actors that were foregathered in the sweet Leilani. In fact, what you and Charlie were saying and doing when I walked back to your booth was almost too much to the point. You let me see the bulky portfolio Charlie shoved across the table at you. It looked like a carrying case for bonds, bank messenger type but it was sealed with wax blobs bearing the imprint of the great seal of the state of California. I was impressed. Where'd you get this? You can read about it in the papers, and if I was you, I'd get this out of sight before them papers hit the street. One thing more, don't try to clip none of them coupons. And one thing more in addition, don't open it at all. Sure. Babe? Yeah, Leon? I think I hire you after all. I took the job and you handed me the portfolio. Outside, we flagged the taxi and you gave the driver an address on Portsmouth Square. Your office, I hate to remind you, was behind one of a bunch of neon-lighted storefronts across from the Hall of Justice. Sign on the door said, Press the button and let freedom ring any hour, day or night. The only bell in sight was a stop press type burglar alarm. You unlocked the door and we went in. You paused in front of a big green safe with a combination lock and started twirling the knob. The tumblers clicked into place. I picked up an inkwell and waited for the safe to open. Spade, give me it. I did. With both hands. With my left, I handed you the portfolio, and with my right, I pitched the inkwell at a well-wired slab of plate glass window. When the burglar alarm went into action, so did you. You dropped everything and were out of the door and out of sight before you could say, let freedom ring. While I was waiting for the cops to arrive, I helped myself to a $500 bearer bond I found lying loose in your safe. I had a feeling I might be needing some bail myself. The Ray 
makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Here's important news on good grooming. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead, socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? The results were amazing. Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred Wild Root Cream Oil. And no wonder. It gives you the advantages that men consider most important. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally, relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose dandruff. What's more, non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil is the only leading hair tonic that contains soothing lanolin. That's like the oil of your skin. So ask for Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too, and mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. And now, back to the Bail Bond Caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I had hoped, Leo, when I made my spectacular move in your bail bond office and set the bells to ringing, that I'd get the caper off my neck and onto the capable shoulders of the police where it now belonged. Then I told myself I could go home and get some sleep. I had never been that fond of Vivian anyway. I was holding the million-dollar portfolio, complete with its big official seal still unbroken, ready to hand it over with a flourish to the first boy in blue that rushed in. But then I saw something that dashed my hopes. There was a strip of scotch tape across the bottom of it. It wasn't up to me to tamper with important evidence, but I didn't have to. It was only a question of what magazine had been cut up to replace the million dollars in bearer bonds. That question was answered at headquarters 20 minutes later. It turned out to be the last 52 issues of Radio Life, which even Captain Walsh of the robbery detail admitted was no help. Neither was Captain Walsh. Now, Spade, in your statement here, you state, uh, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so, uh, sweet Leilani, and that Rosenfoid didn't hand portfolio exhibit in question to Leo M. Scarlett, alias Scarlatti, at approximately 10.20 p.m. this day. That's it, Captain. Now, uh, you sure you want to stick with this? You don't want to change any part of the statement? No, I just want to go home and go to bed. I'm afraid you're going to stay with us for a while. Who, me? Um, statement of Jordan Joyce, M.D., statements of Hilda Sackwriter, R.N., and Mildred DeVilbis, R.N., day and night, nurses respectfully. Who's sick? Rosenfoy. He's been quarantined in his home in Daly City since his release from Alcatraz four days ago. Chickenpox. Sorry, Sam, I'll have to book you. You sure you don't want to add anything to that statement? <sighs> Only this. Kelsey Walsh, if you continue to do such brilliant police work, you will be waving a stop sign at a school crossing in time for the fall semester. 
You are a hangnail on the finger of justice. I thought I had been courteous and cooperative, but even so, it was the middle of the afternoon by the time they set my bail. Fifteen hundred bucks. That made it light. But I hadn't had time to hang the curtains in my cell when I got even worse news. My bail had been posted by who? Vivian, a banana peel in the steps of progress. She met me outside. Well, aren't you going to thank me? What for? Getting me in jail or getting me out? Getting you out, of course. It was all the money I had in all the world. Leo's money was impounded, you know. But, Sam, when I thought of what you and I once meant to each other, and maybe we still... Yeah, yeah, well, uh, you'll get your money back. I'm not really guilty. Oh, I know that. What else do you know? I guess it's safe to talk. Leo phoned me today. Where is he? He wouldn't say. Some pay station. He kept putting in nickels. Sam, you've got to talk to him. You've got to convince him it's best to give himself up. Now you're beginning to make sense, sweetheart. But how can I get to talk to him? I've arranged it. He's to meet us at the Club Leilani. You know, where we had our reunion yesterday. That place on Dunbar? Yeah. Oh, that's great. A crowded saloon less than a block from the police department. Besides, the place has lousy memories for me. By the way, did you ever get out of the ladies' room? If you don't mind, I'd rather talk about something else. Okay, let's talk about how do we bring this big secret meeting off in a crowded cafe. Is Leo coming in a false beard? You really think I'm stupid, don't you? I didn't say so. Well, it so happens that the place is closed on Tuesday. See that sign in the window? Closed Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we break in? I was counting on you. You're a detective. Can't you use a glass key or something? Did you say that bail bond you bought for me was all the money you had in the world? That's the truth. Then get ready to forfeit it. It's a risk I've got to take. You've got to take. Sam, please, if we ever meant anything... Yeah, I know, Half Moon Bay. But sometimes I wish we hadn't been childhood sweethearts. Wait here, I'll case the alley. The alley wasn't much better. Two windows, washroom type, all glass brick except the two small ventilators big enough to put your hand through. The only hope was the kitchen skylight. I didn't have any trouble getting up to it, but once I was there, things didn't look so good. The view from the roof was a garage door with two green lights flanking it. Then it struck me where I was and why I was there. The Club Leilani backed directly on the Hall of Justice where the big bail bond robbery had taken place at 5 p.m. the night before Without further ado, I put my foot through a pane of the skylight, reached in, unlatched it, and dropped. Hurry up, let me in, Sam. Up at the front of the building, I could hear Vivian clamoring for admittance. I decided to let her clamor for another minute or two. It isn't a thing I often do, but I walked resolutely into the ladies' powder room. It was very well equipped. It had furniture, a telephone, and more clues than I needed. The magazines were there, the razor blades were there, the scotch tape was there. There was even a scraping of red sealing wax on the steel frame of the window slot. But best of all is what I found in the paper towel dispenser. I lifted it out and moved it next door to the men's washroom. Then I let her in. What kept you so long? You'll spoil everything. I was afraid you'd... Here comes your husband. Come on, let me in. What happened, Leo? You're early. Any objections? I just got itchy, that's all. 
How are you, baby? Please don't, Leo. I'm so nervous. Strange. What are we going to do, baby? What's Spade going to do for us? Tell him, Sam. I'll leave you two alone to talk it out. I'll freshen up a little. Haven't had my face on all day. Poor kid. Well, Spade, let's have it. Yeah, she's right, Leo. I can do a lot for you. But you've got to do something for me. Spade, this is level. I never saw those bonds. I know that. Then what are you after? The truth. It's the only thing that can save you. And if you take this rap, I take it too. I'm in clear up to my neck. Okay. Charlie Rosenfoy came around to Vivian and made her this proposition. He was going to pull this bail bond job and plant the goods on me. To get even for the rap he thought he'd taken for me. Mm. Vivian pretended to play along with him, only she got hold of the package long enough to take the bonds out and put the old magazines in instead. The idea was the mob would think Charlie had double-crossed them, taken the goods for himself, and delivered a phony packet to their banker, which was supposed to be me. Only you had to get smart and set off that burglar alarm. Now I'm getting the squeeze on all sides. The mob, the law, Charlie are all gunning for me at once. Don't worry about the mob and the law, and don't worry too much about Charlie. What are you driving at? That'll be him now. Who tipped him I was here? Get back in the corner. It's dark in here. He'll never see you. I'll take care of him. All right. Hello, Charlie. Who? Come on in. Good boy, Spade. Get his gun. You're my friend. Sure, I'm your friend. Come here. Yeah, sure, Spade. Pleasant dreams, fellas. Now I act. Hey, Charlie! No, Leo! Vivian? Sam? Is that you? Yeah. The last of your boyfriends. You mean Leo? Charlie? Yeah. They just knocked each other off. Oh, Sam. I can't see. Dark. Where are you? Right here in front of the jukebox. Sure. Hope to die. <gasps> Drop it, Vivian. It's empty. Sam. <laughs> Vivian, how could you? After Half Moon Bay. I'm sorry I had to knock you boys out, Leo, but uh, better lumps than bullet holes, eh? After she started wrapping up the caper, it wasn't too hard to figure what she was up to, providing you could keep her smoke out of your eyes. She told Charlie how to operate on you and told you how to operate on Charlie. A million dollars for her and two dead gangsters lying on the floor of an empty joint where they'd shot it out. The secret of the missing bonds would have to be written off by the police as having died with either one of whichever of you ever had them. Period. End of something. Pardon me, Mr. Spade. I know you're tired. And if you're too fresh, please feel free to elude the whole matter. Yes, okay, let's do that. Thank you. 
Effie said that you were always glad to qualify any little points that she didn't understand. Mm, she said that, did she? Yeah. But she also said that quite accidentally that you sometimes leave things out that should be left in. Bernadine, times are very bad. They're cutting salaries everywhere. But where were they during the whole affariousness affair, if you'll pardon the expression? The bonds? In the paper towel dispenser. Didn't I say so? Oh, that's what you moved to the men. Mm -hmm. But how did they get there? In the Walrinis, if you'll pardon the expression. Simple. When the thieves whizzed through the alley after the heist, Vivian had her well-manicured little lunch hook thrust through the window slot to receive them. Oh, that's how the red sailing wax got there. Bernadine, you're spectacular. Now go and type this up. You're making me nervous. <laughs> You know what they say about people who like mysteries? Once a mystery fan, always a mystery fan. And that goes for hair tonics, too. Once a Wild Root Cream Oil fan, always a Wild Root Cream Oil fan. Just try it and you'll see what I mean. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms the hair neatly and naturally, relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose, ugly dandruff. So tonight, or first thing tomorrow, step up to your drug or toilet goods counter and ask for Wild Root Cream Oil. Get the big economy bottle and the handy new tube that's easy to pack when you travel. Also, ask your barber for a professional application of Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Well, here it is, Mr. Spade. I hope it's not too erroneous. Oh, I'm sure it's quite offensive. Don't you mean inoffensive, Mr. Spade? Have it your way. I don't want to sound imprudent, Mr. Spade, but I must say that your conduct through the whole thing was very brave and outrageous. Don't you mean courageous? <laughs> oh, now I've got you doing it. You're going to be just like Mr. Cummel. Your uh, previous employer, no doubt. Yeah, poor man. You know, he finally became completely erasable. They had to take him away. Mm -hmm. What were his symptoms? Well, when he ordered the puppy biscuits... I thought he was just being concentric. But after a while, he wouldn't answer to anything but Rover. I had to sprinkle his flea powder in the morning, you know? And then he had his little tricks. He always wanted to show off, you know, sitting up and rolling over. He could shake hands, too. What's so great about that? Any dog can shake hands. Yeah, but can you scratch your ear with your foot? If I uh, set my mind to it. Now go home, Bernadine, or I'll report you to the SPCA. <laughs> You can't frighten me. Effie told me that your bark is worse than your bite. Good night, Mr. Spade. Effie, in far-off Kanab, come home, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tolman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lug Gluskin. Gil Dowd directed tonight's broadcast in William Spears' absence. Join us again next Sunday for another adventure with Sam Spade, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie.
study isn't it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie, keeping all the gals away. Hiya, Baldy. Get wild root right away. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison of the grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The White Carnation. understand it. Ben Reynolds is a wonderful guy with a really great future, intelligent, handsome. Well, well, you've seen his picture. Yeah, yeah. You said he's a doctor, didn't you, Casey, an MD? That's right. He's already known as one of the best young medical men in town. Uh, uh, turn left at the next corner, Marlowe. Okay. You also said he's to be married soon. Soon. Tomorrow. Oh. And to the swellest girl in the world, Margaret Vanderveer. Vanderveer. As in Beverly Hills, huh? Yes. You know them? Oh, just a name. Marlowe, we've got to locate Ben Reynolds fast and find out what's wrong. Are you sure it's not just a last-minute case of cold feet? Cold feet? Yeah. Oh, Marlowe, he's in love with the girl. I'm his best man, I know. Besides, uh, this marriage means a lot to the guy's career. He wouldn't run out. It happens, Casey. Oh, not to Ben. Why, he was fine, happy, full of laughs, right up to the minute we went into that flower shop. Flower shop? Yeah, some small place called Steiner's Flowers on Temple Street. Uh, ben and I were driving along there this afternoon when I remember the one thing I'd overlooked was a white carnation for the groom. We stopped and went in. And came the switch. I'll say so. While I talked to the florist, Ben browsed around the shop. Then all at once, he grabbed me by the arm and said, let's get out of here. He was white as a sheet. We left in a hurry, and all the way up here to his place, he kept looking back like he was afraid of being followed. Well, what'd he say about it? Oh, he wouldn't tell me a thing. When we got to his apartment, he gave me a real brush off. I went on home. Then at seven tonight, I got a call from him. Give me that call word for word if you can, Casey. Well, he said, Tom, listen to me. There's a man named Gregory Toledo. I thought he was dead, but he's come back to life. I can't go on until he's dead again, this time for sure. Please don't interfere or say anything. You'll hear from me. Then he hung up. Gregory Toledo, huh? Was Ben at home then? No, no, I tried to call him back, got no answer. I thought it over for a while, then called you. You see, I'm not only his best man, I, I'm his best friend too. Oh. Uh, that's his place there. Okay, kid. I think you've done right so far, but brace yourself. For what? For something ugly. It says all the earmarks. You might wind up needing lilies, not white carnations. Let's go. The apartment was ground floor, rear, and dark. Inside, from walnut paneling to the sweet, nutty smell of good pipe tobacco, Dr. Ben Reynolds' place was neat, clean, and cozy until we got to the kitchen. There, the air was thick with a strong disinfectant. The doctor's kit was open on the sink. Beside it was a heap of blood-soaked gauze topped by a pair of forceps. And still clamped in the chromium jaws was what looked like a 38 slug. He must have performed this just before he left. Yeah, possibly on himself. This bottle of 100-proof bourbon here is the anesthetic he used. Hey, Marlo. Hmm? The cigarette case here. I've never seen that here before. Marlo, look. What? The name on this thing. Toledo. Yeah, as in Gregory Toledo. He was here, Marlo. 
Yeah, but now two plus two doesn't quite make four. Look, you say Ben told you on the phone that he couldn't go on until Gregory Toledo was dead. And yet apparently... Apparently Ben pulled a bullet out of that Toledo guy right here in this kitchen. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Let's check the other rooms again, huh? See if we can get a lead on where he went. Right. I'll look in the bedroom. All right. I'll start on the desk. See if his clothes are still there, will you? Everything seems okay in here. Good. Oh. Say, uh, Casey, did Ben like Armenian or Hungarian food a lot? No. Not that I know of. Why? Well, because his phone book is open to restaurants and every one of that kind is checked off. Even the gypsy tea rooms. Well, that's funny. He never went to those places. What's it mean? Nothing, maybe. Let's see, he got through them as far as, uh, Sarkessian's Gypsy Cellar, 3rd Street. Ring any bell? Not a one. Hmm. What are we going to do, Marlowe? You're going to go home and get some rest. Oh, we've got to find him. That's what you hired me for, isn't it? I'll call you when I've got something. Where are you going now? Steiner's Flower Shop. See what else he stocks beside white carnations. I'll call you, Casey. I unsnapped the front door lock, went out to my car, and drove down Temple Street almost to Alvarado. I still had a block to go when I saw the red spotlights on a pair of prowl cars parked up ahead. It was too close to be coincidence. The little store marked Steiner's Flowers was crawling with law. I pushed through the whispering circle of morbidly curious, keeping a respectful distance outside, and went up to the door. There, Detective Lieutenant Matthews spotted me and motioned me in. Hey, Marlo. What brings you here? Business. Stop for a bachelor button. Uh-huh. Well, you're a bit late. The joint's closed. Proprietor's been murdered or so, I think. You think? Can't you tell? All right, let's put it this way. He's dead under suspicious circumstances. Ah, that's one way of putting it. You know there's not a mark on him? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Here, take a look. The back room. All right. There you are. That's him. One Harlan Steiner. There was a gun beside him on the floor, been fired once, very recently. What caliber, Matthews? Oh, 38. And no bullet holes in here, so he might have scored. Hey, why? Just curious. Uh-huh. Hey, wait a minute, what's this? Motive, maybe. List of currency denominations and amounts sent over from his bank and dated today adds up to $40,000. Hey, that guy had 40000 bucks cash delivered here? That's right. I didn't realize a small flower business could be that good even on a big day. Oh, at your age, it can't. And there's no sign of that cash around now. Well, maybe he was robbed, huh? Mm-hmm. By a handsome, well-dressed guy was seen running out of here earlier tonight. Mm -hmm. Steiner probably died of heart failure from the excitement, so that's that. But why did he have so much dough brought in here in the first place? And how did this get here in the back room? What? This. Oh, cigarette with lipstick. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matthews, even florists are human, you know. So are cops. I've heard. Yeah. Now, give me a straight answer, Phil, huh? Of all the places in town, how come you show up here, this dumpy, out-of-the-way flower shop? I was driving by on my way home, saw your car, so I stopped. Easy I'd... as that. Could have done that well all by myself. <laughs> Mooney! Yeah? You can have it now. Tell him at the morgue I want a fast job. We've seen all we can here. All except that at the front door, Matthews. What? Get a load of it. Maybe she's your lipstick. Oh. Are you a friend of Steiner's, miss? Not exactly, sir. Sometimes buy flowers from him. I see. Were you in here earlier today? No. I haven't been here for several days. What's wrong? Mm -hmm. You'll find out soon enough, miss. Better move along now. Go on. Yeah. You okay? No, she's too dark. Your lipstick's off a blonde. Yes, I know. Well, I guess I'll shove off, too. Take it easy, Lieutenant. Sure, boy. Hey, Phil. What? Look, uh... If you should happen to stumble over 40 grand on your way home, 
Get in touch, will you? Don't I always? Good night, Matthews. I drove down Alvarado to 3rd Street and turned right. In a few minutes, I was parked in front of a gaudy doorway at the foot of a half a dozen steps dimly lit by a rusty hanging lantern under a sign. It said Sarkessian's Gypsy Cellar. Armenian dishes are specialty, Alex Sarkessian proprietor. Inside, the place was a stone floor, imitation oak booths, all empty. The five feet high that Hustle taught me out of a dark corner was Sarkessian himself. The welcome smile dribbled off his face like spilled beer when I said all I wanted was some information. Why you come here for it, eh? What kind of information do you want? On some people, Mr. Sarkessian. Do you know a man named Gregory Toledo? No. Uh, well, how about uh, Reynolds, Ben Reynolds? No. Okay. Try, uh... Never mind that girl on the billboard there. Who's she? Madame Vadena. Just like it says, she's on the billboard. What's her real name? Ruby Vadena. She works here. <laughs> Works. If somebody wants to call looking at tea leaves in a cup, work. But the customer expects it, the customer is always right. So Ruby Vadina works here, but not tonight. All right, where can I find her? Why? Because I saw her a few minutes ago in a certain flower shop. Oh, that's a very good reason. Uh-huh. Now look, mister, I run a restaurant, not a lonely hearts. You, you should... look, Sarkessian, your little gypsy's in a murder right up to her big brass earrings. I gotta talk to her right now. A murder? I knew that fake. Oh, that no good. She ruins my business. What kind of appetite can murder give anybody, I ask you? I ask you for the last time, where does Ruby live? In Villa Garibaldi on the end of Reposa Street. Thanks. When you find her, tell Sarkassian says she's fired. She don't come in my place again, you hear? She's washed out. Reposa Street turned out to be a narrow, block-long tunnel the dark, matted cypress trees, at the end of which Villa Garibaldi squatted like an ancient yellow toad, two stories high. I'd gone far enough for my headlights to pick up the clutter on the stairs when Ruby herself stepped out from the trees and headed for the front door. She had enough head start that she was upstairs and at the door before I caught her. Leave me alone. I haven't done anything, copper. Leave me be. I'm no cop, Ruby. Oh, no. Lisa and I saw you at the flower shop. You're not kidding anybody. Is this your door here? Maybe, but you can't get in there without a warrant, copper. So keep it out here and keep it short. What do you want? Who is Gregory Toledo? I don't know. All right, let's try an easier one. What was that florist holler and Steiner to you? If you're not a cop, what do you care? I'm a private detective, honey, and I care plenty. You know what happened to him, don't you? I think he's dead, if that's what you mean. Mm. He was just a friend, that's all. Oh, no, no. You're not the type for just friends, Doc. I... Hey, wait a minute, sugar. Somebody's in your room. Oh, no. The money. Open the door. Hurry up, will you? I'm trying Well, to... come on. Come on. Get out of my way. Reynolds! Ben, stop! Stay back, you! For an instant, I'd seen Ben Reynolds, his face twisted in fear, a package wrapped in green oil paper clenched in one hand. Then he grabbed up the only lamp and smashed it at me. In the dark, I heard him run through the kitchen and out the back door. By the time I got outside, he was gone. I started for my car to follow him, but stopped again. At the sudden sight of a gun barrel shoved out from the shadows between two trees and pointed straight at me. Don't move, fella. Not one inch or I'll kill you. You sound like you mean it. I do. You're not going any farther, fella. Don't try. And whoever you are, forget about the green package. You'll live longer. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. Just tell me one thing, baby. Are you and the doctor a team? That all depends. Now go on. Back the way you came. I've got an appointment with the doc and I wouldn't want to keep him waiting. Start walking. 
just a moment the second act of Philip Marlowe, but first, with the outbreak of conflict in the Far East, care stockpile in South Korea has fallen into the hands of the invaders, but orders are being accepted so that the moment the conflict ceases, care will be able to move in with badly needed food and clothing for the distressed men and women of Korea. By cooperating with CARE today, you can help bring hope to Korea tomorrow. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The White Carnation. When the lady in the dark left for her appointment with the doctor, I knew that... My next move should be a tight huddle with the good gray heads of homicide. But I also knew that first there was the matter of Ruby Vardena. I could tell by the way she was coming for me. The kind of enthusiasm you see only at feeding time at the zoo. Where is it? The money. Where did it go? How do Where? I know? You're the fortune teller. Now, what'll it be? Cards, teacup, crystal ball? Or should we just try some plain old-fashioned conversation, Ruby? Huh? Now about what? Well, for one thing, 40,000 bucks that won't sit still. For another, your connection with Steiner's murder. The law is just itching to hear about that one. Not the police. I don't want to tangle with them again. I mean... Oh. Could be embarrassing talking over the good old days, Ruby. Is that it? What do you want to know? You and Steiner and the 40,000. What's the story? Steiner and I were supposed to go away together to be married. He loved me. Mm. You loved the 40 grand. Go on. The money came from the sale of his flower shop. He brought it over here tonight, said he'd be back. When he didn't show up, I, I went to find him. That's all I know. Not enough, Ruby. That shop wouldn't bring 40,000 bucks like you could pass for a school mom. Where'd he get the money? I, I haven't the slightest idea. But I do have a suggestion. Oh? If you can get your hands on the money, which is really mine now, uh, split it with you... And we could even take a long, long trip, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no dice, baby. I wouldn't sleep nights worrying about my traveler's checks. So long, clairvoyant. When I left the piano shawl beauty with a dollar sign heart, I stopped at a mobile gas station, and while they filled my tank, I made a call back to the flower shop. Learned that Detective Lieutenant Matthews had gone down to the morgue. But 20 minutes later, when I was there, I was still a step behind. Because Matthews had since gone on to headquarters. However, I was also a step ahead. They had just learned why Steiner had died. Connor, the attendant, was pleased as punch to tell me all about it. Hey, see, Marlo? Right here, the back of the neck. That slap of a hypodermic needle. Holds no bigger than a mosquito bite. Real hard to find. Mm-hmm. And it was an injection that killed him, Connor, huh? Some kind of poison? Uh, we'll have it tagged in a couple of hours. Want me to let you know what it is? No, no, never mind. I'll be in touch with Lieutenant Matthews anyway. By the way, Connor, mind if I use your phone? Why should I? They don't send me the bill. <laughs> Over on the wall there. Thanks. But, uh, Marlowe, huh? no long distance, huh? Oh, no, no. Downtown, Connor. Not another inch. That case, help yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, Marlowe, one night some news hawk got on the tube here and talked to his girl in Long Beach for 40 minutes. It was two weeks later we found out it was Long Beach, Long Island, not Long Beach, California. Thomas, <laughs> yeah. son, Lieutenant Matthews. Marlowe Matthews, I'm down at the morgue. Oh, what is it, Marlowe? Steiner, or are you still just a wayfaring stranger? No, it's Steiner. Look, Matthews, I found out a couple of things that might help. I figured you would. 
Who is it, Muller? Well, so far it could be a Dr. Reynolds, but there's more to it. There always is. Wait there, Phil. I'll be over. Okay, but one thing first, Matthews. Does the name Gregory Toledo is in Ohio mean anything to you? Offhand, no. Why? Where does it fit in? Yeah, well, I'm not sure. When I started, Dr. Reynolds was out to kill Toledo again. It uh, seems he's come back to life. Come back to what? Sounded like you said... I did, I did, yeah. <clears throat> well, we'll talk about it when you get here. So long, Matthews. Hey, uh, pardon me for butting in, Mr. Marlowe, but that's kind of funny, what you said, I mean. Why? It was the name you threw at Matthews, Toledo. You see, I... No, no, I couldn't count. Well, oh, Wait a minute, I... wait a minute, Connor. Huh? What's funny about the name Toledo? Come on, it can count, plenty. Oh, it's just a coincidence, that's all. Well, that can be enough, let's have it. Okay, Marlowe, about... Six or seven years ago, we had a dead one in here named Toledo. Yeah. The front part I don't recall, but it wasn't that Gregory. Anyhow, the cops shot him full of holes for resisting arrest. What's the kind of funny part? Oh, not much, Marlar. Only you just tied somebody named Toledo to this Steiner here who was killed with a hypo. And? And the Toledo bird I'm talking about was a dope peddler. Dope peddlers, Marlowe, are sometimes real handy with hypo needles. Nothing, huh? No. Unless it fits tighter. Hey, look, Connie, you keep files here, don't you? Yeah. You could get me an address on the Toledo you're talking about, a first name next to Ken, so on, couldn't you? Sure I could. What's more, I'd be glad to, Marlowe. Why, if this meant something, it'd be... Yeah, well, let's get to the files, yeah, huh, Connie? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, this way. Morgan Tenant Cracks, Ken's specialty. Uh, right over here. Hey, here we are. Tobias, Tilaco, Toledo. Toledo, yeah, yeah, Toledo. Here it is, Marlowe. Let me see that. Uh, Toledo, John Edward, August 18th, 1943. Shot to death by police officer Celestia's in Hogan Bay. Resisting arrest. Address, 31 Juniper Place, Ocean City, California. Next to Kent. Holy smoke, Gregory Toledo, a son. <laughs> Connie, you're a genius. Oh. Now, do one more thing for me, will you please? Yeah, sure. When Lieutenant Matthews gets here, tell him I'm sorry to stand him up, but that if I'm real lucky, he won't be mad at all. Yeah, but Marlo, this address at Ocean City, seven years old. I know, Connor. That's why I said real lucky. I'll see you. The gentleman who answered the door at 31 Juniper Place was about 60. Wore a spotted torn bathrobe that read like a menu and needed a shave, a haircut, and... Peeping through his torn slippers, I saw a blue jay corn plaster. However, his spirit was bright. Seems he uh, liked having visitors. Yes, sir. You're the manager? Oh, I am indeed. Have been for 18 years. Albert A. Keyline. You looking for a room, sir? No, just some information, Mr. Keyline. My name's Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and a I... A private detective? Well, come right in, sir. My goodness, don't often get to chat with a man in your profession. No, I... welcome I... the opportunity. Uh... <laughs> I usually keep the living room closed, except on Sunday, but tonight I think we can forget that regulation. Yeah, well, look, I'm... <laughs> the uh, Morris chair there is the best one. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you. Mr. Keyline, did you know John Toledo? Toledo? I most certainly did. Mm. He stayed here for five years, I'm unhappy to inform you. He was killed on my front lawn there in 1943. It was good riddance to... Oh. Oh, I see why you're here, Mr. Marlowe, but frankly, I expected the police, not a private detective. Well, why should you expect the police? Because not two hours ago, Emma Mallory, my neighbor, saw Greta Toledo over at the amusement pier. Greta Toledo? You mean Gregory Toledo, don't you? I don't think so. I would have said Gregory if I meant Gregory. Oh, I don't doubt that for a minute. Besides, that boy'd know better than to come back to Ocean City. It's done him enough harm. I, I said Greta Toledo, John Toledo's daughter, Gregory's twin. 
Twin. Wait a minute, Mr. Keyline, this is important. Greta and Gregory Toledo are twins and the children of John Toledo? That's right, sir. All three lived here for five years, like I said, and a more different brother and sister you never heard of. Well, different like what? Like heaven above Careful. and... That other place below, that's <laughs> what. The boy was fine. The girl a terror. At 13, she was tormenting Alicast, and at 18, when she left here, she was a brazen hussy. Both went their separate ways from here a week after John was buried. You haven't seen him since? No, except one night about a month later when the boy, Gregory, came here to visit me and asked for all the pictures I had of him and his father and sister. I used to be an amateur photographer, you know. The I got a pictures, one time at a, pictures, uh, Mr. Uh, Keyline, why did he want them? And I guess he was kind of soft-hearted. I gave him the whole batch except one of Greta. And I only saved it because the lighting was so good. I've got it right here. I, I took it a couple of weeks before they got John. Look, look, see how the sunlight behind her head gives a soft feeling to the whole picture? Yeah, it's practically a halo. Yes, sir. Very professional. Uh, I'll just take that now, Mr. Marlowe. I might try and improve it someday. Yeah, the best of luck. Keyline, don't move your finger. Hmm? My finger? Well, why not? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, are you sure you feel all right? Frankly, no. But I hope they get better as I go along. Listen, Keyline, that neighbor of yours, that Emma, who said she saw Greta Toledo at the amusement pier, was it the big one off the foot of Surf Street? Oh, sure was. Emma saw her go behind one of the concessions and take a flight of stairs down to the beach. Which flight of stairs? There's a half a dozen of them, Keyline. Think, will you? You don't have to. I know, because Emma said it was the flight by the cotton candy concession. You know, that fuzzy stuff. And he's near the merry-go-round. I'm sure of that, because Emma mentioned the merry-go-round. She never leaves out any details, you know. Emma's a thorough... The steps that led down from the cotton candy concession took me to a fairyland graveyard under the amusement pier. Dead carousel animals, horses, sea serpents, dragons that smiled, all broken and bent and piled any side up. Some rusted brown, some of the bilious green discolor of old brass. Then a lot of steel and stone dwarfs who must have belonged to some long ago winter wonderland, also broken and rusted. But beyond that, the people were real, both of them. One was Greta Toledo. She was the same lady in the dark who had stopped me outside of the gypsy's place. The other was the man I had started out to find. The man who was out to re-kill Gregory Toledo. Dr. Ben Reynolds. Wait a minute, Gregory. What? One thing we still have to talk about. Or should I call you Dr. Reynolds? All right, get to the point, Greta. I am. Why, well, I asked you to meet me here. It's a safe place to talk. What did it talk about? You were shot and I gave you medical attention. You demanded that I get $40,000 that was yours, and I did. You did, hero. But only to keep me from letting everyone know that the fine Doc Reynolds is really Gregory Toledo, the son of a dope peddler. All right, sister mine. What do you want? Just this. You're really on my hook, brother. I got a big news flash for you. I wasn't shot in self-defense tonight. It was while I was committing a murder in a flower shop from filth named Harlan Steiner. What? Yeah, a murder with a hypodermic needle. I murdered a man who was double-crossing me. Tried to take this $40,000 here. We got it from a sale of opium. He's trying to take this money and run with it in a gypsy lady oh, love. Listen, listen, how tight do you think you can squeeze me? There's an end to everything, even blackmail. Don't you see that? I'd be much worse off as a murderer accomplice than exposed as a doctor with a very unsavory family background. Also, Greta, I've got a few moral compunctions. A doctor is supposed to save lives, not destroy them. Then see what you can do about yours, doctor. Don't try it, Greta. Oh, 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 oh. 
How's the aim, sister? She's dead. Yeah. And so is Gregory Toledo, finally. We better get to the police, Dr. Reynolds. Marlo, you stepped out of turn all right, but you happened to step in the right direction. How? I still don't know. Yes, that picture Keyline showed you out in Ocean City, Mr. Marlo. It was Greta, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Ooh, this coffee's hot. <laughs> Didn't mean a thing, though, Tom. I'd only seen Greta in the dark at the Gypsies. Yeah, then how did it help? Uh, more coffee here, please. Huh? Coffee. Oh, sure. Well, it helped, actually, when Keyline added his finger. That covered the girl's hair. And when I could only see the face... It looked like a man, and you saw not Greta, but her twin brother, Gregory. Wait a minute, who you knew as Dr. Reynolds from a picture you'd seen earlier? Good work, Marlowe. No, no, good luck, Matthews. There was Connor in the morgue, a gabby woman named Emma Mallory, Keyline's hobby as a photographer, and, oh, lots of little things. Uh, pardon me, Lieutenant, I, I don't quite know how to say this, but what about the publicity, the newspapers, and what it'll it do to... Uh, well, Dr. Reynolds being Gregory Toledo. Dr. Reynolds being who? Hey, miss, I'd like that coffee tonight. <laughs> you know, I always did like you, Matthews. Good night, fellas. outside, it was pushing four o'clock in the morning. And I was tired of a long night that had been crowded with a lot of death and a lot of people. But I was also looking forward to a lot of life. Good life. For Dr. Ben Reynolds and his bride. So, thinking about them, I drove slowly through the quiet city streets until the black melting into gray in the corners of the sky said was almost tomorrow. And then I went home, found a telegram. It was from the groom. Tom Casey and the bride-to-be joined me in saying that there's no doubt as to who the best man really is. Please do us the honor tomorrow at five o'clock sharp. Oh, that's nice. Now all I need is one white carnation and, uh, I wonder where that gypsy girl is. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Paul Dubov, Virginia Gregg, Fritz Feld, Georgia Ellis, Tom Tully, Parley Bear, and John Daner. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Broadcasting Company brings transcribed to its entire network one of radio's most unusual programs. Pat Novak. 
for hire. San Francisco, you always bite off more than you can chew. It's tough on your windpipe, but you don't go hungry. And down here, a lot of people figure it's better to be a fat guy in a graveyard than a thin guy in a stew. That way, you can be sure of a tight fit. Oh, I rent boats and do anything else that makes a sound like money. It works out all right. If your mother doesn't mind you coming home for Easter in a box. I found that out Wednesday night about nine o'clock. I closed the shop early and I came home to read. It wasn't a bad book if you ever wanted to start a forest fire. It was one of those historical things. And the girl in it wandered around like a meat grinder in ribbons. I was moving along all right. She was just getting her second wind before going after the world's record when the door to my apartment opened and the place began to get kind of crowded. From where I sat, the crowd looked good. She sauntered in, moving slowly from side to side like 118 pounds of warm smoke. Her voice was all right, too. It reminded you of a furnace full of marshmallows. Good evening. Yeah, thanks for knocking. I don't think you mind my coming in without warning. No, I get the cabbage smell from next door the same way. Does it pay to be that polite, Mr. Novak? Saves you the trouble of saying please. What's on your mind? That bottle in front of you. Will you pour me a drink? No, I won't. You'll save dough if you look up a bartender. All right. I came to use you instead of your whiskey anyway. Let's hear. My name is Lee Inderwood. I'll give you $300 to do something for me. It'll only take an hour. That's too much dough unless it's murder, and if it is murder, it's not enough dough. Are you afraid? I just don't like paid murder. I told you, when you get caught, the pain gets expensive. If it were murder, I'd do it myself. Mr. Novak, I want you to frighten someone for me. Why don't you hire a friend? Are they too pretty? It's a man named Dixie Gillian. You'll find him in an office down on Folsom Street at this address. I promise nothing will happen to you. That's what they told Benedict Arnold. He'll be in this office until 11 tonight. I want you to go in and see him. Tell him you're from Adrian, and that he's to get out of town by tomorrow noon. Suppose he wants to put it off. He won't. Don't let him know who hired you. Just tell him Adrian said to leave. Look, lady, you better go on home. For 300 bucks, I won't buy a tissue paper plot. Now tell me more or say goodbye. There's not much more I can tell you, except there won't be any trouble. He's a rotten little beast, and I want him frightened badly. Why? He's been bothering my sister. Why doesn't he bother you? Because I bother back too fast. You want the 300, Mr. Novak? It's going to be a long summer. Put it on the table. Good. And you'll need this, too. No, you keep that. I don't want a gun. It's empty. Don't worry. See? No shells. It's perfectly safe. Now, look, sis, I got a nasty disposition. You can rent that for 300 bucks, but if you want more, find a gunsel. I don't want you to be a gunsel. That's why I want you to use this gun. I know it's empty. Use it on Dixie and he'll scare fast. It's just a way to save some breath. All right. It's your 300. You'd better go now. Yeah. Wait till I get a coat, will you? If your doorbell rings, don't play mouse. Oh? Because I may look you up. 
Am I too young to ask why? Because if anything goes wrong, I'll be around looking for you. And from there on, it won't be nice. I'll dirty you up like a locker room towel. Relax, Patsy. You'll never learn to fall in love that way. She handed me the gun and walked out of my apartment. Seeing her leave made you feel like Frank Buck losing an argument. She walked with a nice, easy swing of a satisfied leopard. And for a small leopard, she had pretty good spots, too. Well, I put the gun in my overcoat pocket and I went down to Folsom Street. The address was down near the bridge entrance and the street was deserted except for a couple of winos near the corner trying to buy back 1926 at a dollar a jug. I stopped in front of the place. It was a machinery company. And I could see a light burning in the back. I began to walk through the place. It was so quiet you could hear a worm with whooping cough and there were enough shadows around to keep a ghost happy for years. When I got to the office back in the corner, through the glass, I could see a man sitting at the desk. When I opened the door and walked in, he didn't seem surprised. Come on in, mister. You're bad on noise. Yeah? That's right. You make too much for a thief and not enough for a customer. What do you want? About ten words, if you're Dixie Gillian. Go ahead. You better look up a timetable. What makes you that tough? This. Oh. Well, you look tougher with a gun. Does it make you talk faster? Now, look, I'm going to say it slow, mister. Pack up your rompers and get out. Is that you talking or somebody else? I'm just the guy with the gun. Adrian does the talking. And he says get out. That's right. You got the whole message now. All right, you told me, so wander out and spend your dough. I will. Oh, you'll need part of it, though. Because I'm going to give you an answer for Adrian. I'm going to take that gun away from you, mister. You can pick the pieces out of your head on the way home. You better stand back or I'll share it with you. You've got your offer, mister. Let's see you make good. I'll save your muscle, fella. Stop that gun! Save your muscle, fella. The gun's empty. Somebody fooled us, mister. Sometimes you can get a home run with a half swing. That's the way it was this time. He couldn't have made it with a prayer book in both hands. He slid down to the floor and trembled for a minute and then flattened out like a leaf in a pool of water. Just before he died, he grabbed his side as if he didn't like the way it hurt. And then he didn't care. I rolled him on his back and let him look at the ceiling. His eyes were open and he looked surprised like a guy who didn't figure on a change in the weather. There was a scar that ran across his forehead and dug deep into his hairline. And he was lying there with a bunch of pink gum showing as if he was trying to pick up a few bucks with a toothpaste ad. Well, I didn't have time to tell him how sorry I was because if homicide caught me here, I'd have about as much chance as a canary in a basement full of cats. I started for the door, but right then I knew I could start ordering birdseed. It was Hellman, and he walked over to look at the body. Hello, Novak. The guy looks embarrassed. Yeah, I guess he is, Hellman. What's he doing dead? Putting in a beef somewhere, I guess. He rates it. He'll like you for that, Novak. How'd it happen? A team play. We worked it out together. But you've got the gun. That's right. I got the gun. Yeah. You feel like a bet? No, just keep stealing the old way. You know how I feel, Novak? You feel flabby to anybody else, but to yourself, I suppose you feel good. 
Look, I walked in here with a gun. There was some quick fight talk, and I killed him, but it's still not a good rap. I can get a long price on it for you, Novak. I'll bet you can, Hellman. You can give me a bad deal, but part of the time it'll be from the other side of the deck. Worse than that, Novak, it'll be all the time. And I want to watch you because I think you're going to be a crybaby. I'm going to scream if that's what you mean, Hellman. I'm going to scream about a gal that sent me in here with an empty gun. That's a big hole for a cap pistol, Novak. I got a last-minute curve. It was empty once. Yeah, that's the only way they make a gun. I don't want you for an hour ago. I want you for this dead guy on the floor. All right, all right. I told you I didn't come in here to kill the guy. I don't know him. He may even be a good guy. I'm sorry he's dead. All right, Novak. Just wait a few weeks. You can tell him personally. Hellman had me up against the rail and he knew it. When we left there, he was wearing a big, toothy smile. It was big enough to sew on his ears. He called the coroner and told him to pick up the stiff, and then we rode downtown. He dropped the gun into ballistics and hauled me into his office. The reporters were there. He gave them the whole story and told them how to spell Hellman. After that, we wound up at the desk, and he booked me on suspicion of murder. The next hour and a half was the kind of stuff they don't write about in the paper. They call it interrogation. And when you're finished, you've been through a lot of tight spots, like an atom up at Caltech. About 11 o'clock, Hellman brought me into his office, and from there on, it happened kind of fast. I just talked to the DA. He's going to streamline things for you. Well, he's going to look funny going to trial on a guy you can't identify. We'll find out all about the dead guy. Well, you can't count his fingers without making a mistake. If you want to know who he is, talk to that girl. Her name's Lee Inderwood. We've been through all that, Novak. Now, suppose you tell me who Dixie Gillian is. I don't know, Hellman. The girl said his name was Dixie Gillian. I won't press you. I don't have to, Novak. I've got the only parlay I need. You, the dead guy, and a big, fat murder gun. Uh, sure. Yeah, Hellman talking. Yeah, I know it was a thirty-eight. They're crazy down in ballistics. I saw them standing over the dead guy. They must have made a mistake, that's all. No, no, I don't want him in here. I don't want him in here. Hey, Tony. Tony, I... Ah. You're getting pale. You need some more rouge, Hellman. I got some bad news, Inspector. Well, keep it or you'll take more home to your wife. I'll talk to you later. No, talk to him now, Hellman. If that bullet doesn't match the gun, talk to him now. That's right, Inspector. A thirty-eight bullet, but it won't match the gun you brought in. It's got to match. I came in and found him standing there. He's already admitted it. It's a neat trick, then. If he fired the bullet out of that gun, he retooled it in midair. I'm not that fast, Hellman. Come on, get out of that chair so you'll have room to squirm. You keep still, Novak. I won't bother you. I'm going home. Huh? I'm walking out of your jail, Hellman. You got a broken down 38 that won't fit anything but your thumbs. You can't hold me on that. I found you over the body. I can hold you on suspicion of murder. Yeah, but it'll hurt tomorrow morning, Hellman. The papers will be down for a follow-up, and you'll have to tell them what it looks like out in left field. I'll handle them. You can't afford to let them start laughing at you. People get the idea it's your face. You can save car fare if you stay right here, because I'll have you back by noon tomorrow. You're not that good, Hellman. You couldn't hold a moth with a searchlight. The town ought to thank you. What? Oh, it's a nice jail, Hellman. With you around, it'll last for years. When I walked out of headquarters, I had a nice mess to juggle. It was like trying to walk the baby on a floor full of marbles. If things didn't add up for Hellman, they weren't going to do any better for me. I knew that gun I had went off. If it did, what happened to the bullet and where did the other one come from? And why weren't there two shots? Well, I couldn't put my finger on a thing, and nothing added up. It was like trying to follow a grain of rice in a Shanghai suburb. So I looked up Lee Inderwood's address, and I went by her apartment. A girl downstairs told me that she worked at a nightclub out on the Bay Shore Highway. 
Well, I had to hit a couple of places, so I looked up the only honest guy I know. An ex-doctor and a boozer by the name of Jocko Madigan. A good man until he began to figure the last drink in the bottle is just as easy to get at as the first. I found him in a little leather-trimmed sink on Powell Street. It was a grimy little hole where they washed the glasses once a week in stale beer. But Jocko was more at home than a vulture in Calcutta. Ah, Patsy, you're just in time to celebrate my return to health. Something mild for Mr. Novak, a double stinger, perhaps. No, forget it, Jocko. i got to talk to you. Patsy, I've just passed through a crisis. A few minutes ago, they set before me a glass with a woman's lipstick all around the rim. All right, Jocko. I took one gulp and looked at the glass, and in this dim light, I thought I was bleeding to death. It took them ten minutes and three mirrors to calm me down. Jocko, I'm in trouble. You've got to help me. But they washed the glass for me in ammonia. They must have left a little ammonia in the glass because the next drink had a very odd tang about it. I've had three more just like it, a, a sort of ammonia collins. All right, all right. So far, they've been using domestic ammonia. When the imported stuff comes in, I may give up whiskey altogether. Calm down, will you, Jocko? i got a bum shake tonight. Yes? I either killed a guy or thought I did. That uses up the alternatives. Uh, what are you doing now, taking a vote? I got hired to scare a guy down on Folsom Street. Ten minutes later, the guy was dead. Patsy, you take your work too seriously. Couldn't you have just scared him into a lingering illness instead of killing him? One of the props was an empty gun. Only when the fight came, it grew bullets. Hellman walked in right after on a telephone tip. What are you doing out of the gas chamber? The whole thing backfired down at headquarters. The bullet and the phony gun wouldn't match. Oh, it doesn't add up, Jocko. That call to Hellman's a tip-off. I was framed, but why wasn't I framed all the way? Who is the dead man? Oh, just a guy with a falling blood count. His name was supposed to be Dixie Gillian, but there's no identification and no record on him. You shouldn't have hired out as a gunsel. I told you I didn't hire out as a gunsel. It was somebody else's idea. You have no conscience, Patsy. It's just a sort of soap opera rule of thumb you put into practice now and then, but no real conscience. You'd let a dying woman lie in the middle of the highway unless her head was resting on a pile of savings bonds. All right, Jocko, I'll cry with you later. I need help now. What sort of help? I want you to break into a girl's apartment. Yes? Don't worry, she won't be home. Ah, is that supposed to be an incentive? It's at this address here, up on O'Farrell. Her name is Lee Enderwood. She's the one who hired me. If the girl's not there, what am I supposed to find? Anything that'll connect her with a dead man. He's a big guy with a scar. That doesn't help much. You can't miss. Go through the desk and drawers. Pick up everything you can, will you? And leave a message at my place. As soon as I finish this drink. Oh, hurry up, will you, Jocko? Leave the glass alone and get going. Don't rush me. Hurry up, will you? The glass is empty anyway. Yes, that's what you thought about that gun, but the fellow got an awful jolt out of it. Good night, lover. I went by a horse parlor on O'Farrell Street and borrowed a car from a guy. It was after midnight when I started down the Bayshore Highway, and about a half hour later, I pulled up in front of the Cat's Paw. It was a long, rambling place on the left side of the road. There was no plan. It just followed the erosion line until they ran out of material. There was enough neon in front to light a main intersection in heaven. In the lobby, I saw a picture of Lee Enderwood, one of those shadowy things that was supposed to make you think she'd die in a cold climate. She was sitting at a piano with a little microphone in front of her, and you got the idea right away. She didn't have much of a voice, but plenty of songs that made your wife lean over and ask you to explain. 
I asked a 50-year-old busboy, and he said she was back in her dressing room getting ready for the 1 o'clock show. When I walked in, she was sitting in front of a mirror working on an upswept hairdo. If she swept it up anymore, it was going to leave her head. I stood behind her looking at the pink, fresh part of her neck that didn't show when the hair was down. You seem fascinated, Patsy. No, I just want to know where to break it. Oh. Sit down on the footstool next to me. That's it. I like to look down on people. Mm. Let me brush that strand of hair back. Or do you like it in your eyes? Now brush it back so I can see your answers. Who's Dixie Gillian? What difference does it make? None to him and some to me. He's dead. No, he couldn't be dead. Yeah, well, he'd like to believe that, too. I couldn't sell him that story about an empty gun. He couldn't have been killed with that gun. No? No. I put in a blank, Patsy. Somebody used a hard-working bullet because Dixie's dead. There was no reason to kill him. I don't understand. Yeah, well, that makes you even with homicide, but they got a bigger team. Now, look, I made a diagram, Angel. Up at my place, I ran over murder with you. I don't like it. If you kill people, you don't get invited out enough. So if it's you or me on this one, I'm going to push you all the way. Don't understand it, Patsy. Who's Dixie Gillian? He was after some microfilm. I thought I could scare him away. You better be ready to identify him because homicide stopped. Even that scar didn't help. What scar, Patsy? The scar across his face. There's no record on him. No, no, Patsy. Everything goes wrong. Everything you touch goes wrong. That's the wrong man, Patsy. Yeah. Well, it's too late for a recount. You've got to get to that body, Patsy. I don't know how, but some way you've got to get to him. You look good, Lee. We'll make a nice picture. Wait a minute, Dixie. You don't need your coat. Come on. I don't know how it happened, Dixie. I didn't mean it that way. If you like it that way, all right. Bring your boyfriend, too. No, don't let him, Patsy. The gun's too big. I'm going with him. It was a short trip. He led us out of the dressing room and down a thin hall to the back door. On the way past the kitchen, you could smell onions and used grease, and that's about all you noticed except the sound of a jukebox somewhere out in front and somebody laughing in a loud, mirthless way. When we got to the door, it was raining outside. We walked about 40 feet over near some trees where the dark was working overtime, and the gunsel made her stop. Pick your spot, Lee. You can't be that crazy, Dixie. She's going to get wet, mister. You'll have a little trouble yourself. When I woke up, it was still raining lying on top of the mud like a stubborn seed. My wallet was gone, and the gunsel had ripped open my pockets. I stood up and walked over for a last look at Lee. The rain had washed the makeup off her face, and she looked small and tired as she lay there, like a broken doll that had been tossed out in the rain. I guess she was. Well, I got to my car, and I drove back to town. I checked my place, but there was no word from Jocko, so I went up to Lee's apartment. When I opened the door, the room was dark, but I knew somebody was on the rug. Either that or they'd varnished the floor with bourbon. I flipped on the light and bent over Jocko. Hey, hey, hey. Wake up, Jocko. All right, Jocko. Come on. Wake up. Come on. A little ammonia. A little ammonia, I think, would bring me around. What happened? 
I was sapped, I guess. Uh, everybody's got the same act tonight. Uh, help me up. Come on. Where have you been? I went down to meet the girl. Where'd you meet her? In a swimming pool? I've been in the rain all night. She's going to stay longer. What'd you find out? The fellow with the sky is her husband. Yeah? There's a picture in the desk. Are there any more pictures? A few. Take a look. Okay. Where, in here? Yes. Well, well. Who's he? It must be Dixie Gillian. He was down to pay off a debt tonight. She called him Dixie once. There's a note with that name and an address in the other drawer. He's our boy. We better get up there. Not if he's already killed two other people. We can't wait for Hellman. If he gets away, I'm all through. I won't have a leg to stand on. That's my point. When the other fellow gets through with us, we won't have much standing to do. I felt better now. Gillian was the only guy left in the picture, so I dragged Jocko up to his place. It was an apartment up on Post Street. The elevator operator took us up to the eighth floor and said that Gillian had come in a few minutes before. There was no answer, so we tried the door and it was open. Jocko didn't like the idea. Patsy, this is folly. Risking my life is one of the bravest things you do. Keep still, Jocko. What are we supposed to do? The door was open, wasn't it? Saw a lot of graves, but I've never been tempted. Hey, look at the furniture. There's been a fight in here. I'll look in here. You check in the bedroom, huh? Well, if I'm not right back, don't expect me at all. All right. Patsy. Yeah? Patsy, come here. All right. There's somebody on the fire escape. Come here. Stand back here. Oh, he's not moving. He was leaning that way when I first saw him. All right, I'll get on this side. You raise the window. Now, go easy, Jocko. Can you see him from there? Raise it a little more. All right. He's still leaning there. I can reach out. All right, watch yourself. If he's kidding, you'll lose an arm. I've got it good. Raise the window more. Okay. Patsy, he's falling. Give me a hand. Well, here, let me through there. Oh, it's too late. I can't hold it. Hang on, Jocko. He's falling. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, he was probably dead anyway. If he wasn't, that was a step in the right direction. Well, it was an easy night to die. Three of them had checked out already, and there was still time to look for more. Jocko and I went downstairs to see the guy. He was lying face down in the alley, and as you looked at him, you got the funny feeling he belonged there. He didn't disturb the scene. He just fitted in like a dirty, wet newspaper under a grandstand. There was a gun in his pocket, probably the same one that killed the girl, but there was no way of knowing. Jocko and I watched him for a minute, but your eyes begin to hurt when you see your only warm lead in a deep freeze. It was past two when I got down to headquarters and looked up Hellman. I briefed him on the girl and the guy in the alley, and then I asked him if any microfilm had turned up on the first guy in the morgue. That was a waste of time. Hellman couldn't find a brass ring in a dead man's nose, but we went over to the morgue for another look. So far, it was working out like a crossword puzzle torn in half. It's your time, Novak. I got more after tomorrow. You haven't. The microfilm must be on the guy. Three people have been killed for it, and I got roughed up just for laughs. We searched the guy once. Uh, here it is. All right. Help me roll it out. Yeah. Well, well. He sure got thin under that sheet, didn't Wait he? Wait a minute. Oh, you run a good morgue, Hellman. What'll the paper say when they hear the stiff got up and walked out? They got him in the wrong place or something. He didn't walk out. Well, he's gone, Hellman. You got an answer? 
He's been moved, I tell you. The guy was dead, and I saw him put in here. Couldn't be walking around with a hole in the middle of his back. I don't know, Hellman. You do it with one in your head. Don't sell the guy short. When Hellman found out the body was gone, he stood there and stared at the empty slab. And then he started looking around in a nervous way, like a man trying to find the sugar bowl at a restaurant counter. A few minutes later, he turned and walked out of the morgue, and we were halfway downtown when it happened. It must have hit us at the same time, sharp and quick, like a piece of candy and a bad tooth. The guy back in the alley had come off that slab in the morgue. We got out to Dixie's place, and we began to check. There was a phone operator downstairs, and she said that Dixie had put through a call about two hours ago. Hellman checked the number, and it was the ticket office of a railroad. We got downtown and ran through the timetable. There was a train leaving the Oakland Mole in about 40 minutes. Well, it was an outside chance, but tonight that was the only kind for sale. We got down in time to slide on the last ferry over to the Mole. It was still dark out when the ferry pulled away from the slip and started across the bay. But over toward the Berkeley Hills, it was beginning to get light. The sky was the color of a bruise spot on a man's arm. We'll get up to the pilot house and tell him not to dock until we've gone through all the passengers. He doesn't have to be on this one. We'll check the train when we get there. Wait a minute. You don't have to check. There's your boy. Where? Up there on the rail, see? Now, you better go easy, Hellman. He's not a scale model. Just walk quietly until we're behind him. All right. Turn around, mister. You'll get a better view. Hello, Novak. How was the wind and the rain in your hair? Meet Inspector Hellman. You better turn in your ticket. I hope you brought your muscle. Grab him, Hellman. That's what I'm trying to do. All right, copper. Watch it. I'm being pushed over on the rail. I'm worried, Hellman. Watch it, Novak. I'm going over. Oh! One down, mister. Now for you. I landed on the deck and watched him disappear into the dark. Halfway down, the guy turned in. I got up and followed him down the ladder and along the main deck. He ducked into one of the engine spaces and I started in to look for him. It didn't take long because he turned out to be real helpful. You got the idea yet, Novak? I'll come closer. Tell me then. Do it yourself. But I'll knock you down hard when you show. Watch that platform. You're backing into trouble. Stay back there, Novak. Watch out for that platform, will you? You're backing into the engine. Ah! I kind of wound up last, huh? Yeah. That's the way it looks. Did you get the microfilm? Yeah. Uh, I got a big hurt. Does it show... A little. Yeah. It's been a long night, Novak. Huh? Yeah, but your worries are over. It's almost dawn. I don't know if I can use it. But I'll give it to you.
They fished Hellman out of an oil slick a few minutes later. It's the first time his hair ever looked good. Dixie Gillian lasted long enough to piece the story together for homicide. Lee Underwood knew her husband was carrying microfilm, and she was worried, so she hired me to scare off Gillian. Oh, it might have worked, too, but the first slip came when Lee's husband went by to make a deal with Dixie without telling her. When I jumped him, Dixie was outside and figured it was a double cross, so he killed him with a silencer when that phony gun that Lee gave me went off. Dixie knew that the microfilm was still on the dead man. The only way he could be sure was to get the body out of the morgue. He took it up to his apartment, and when he got the film, he planted the gun and put the body on the fire escape. It was a little safer that way. There was a 50-50 chance the police would miss it the first time around, and he'd have a fair lead. Almost worked out for him, except for that phone call. The microfilm was in a capsule next to the roof of the guy's mouth. So old, it was new again. Well, Hellman asked only one question. In that fight, did I have anything to do with pushing him against the rail? I told him sometimes those ferry boats roll as much as 45 degrees. American Broadcasting Company has just brought you the 10th of a new series, Pat Novak for Hire, starring Jack Webb. Pat Novak is produced and directed by William P. Rousseau. Jocko Madigan is played by Tudor Owen. Inspector Hellman is played by Raymond Burr. Music was composed and conducted by Basil Adlam. Be with us again next week, when over most of these same ABC stations, we'll bring you Pat Novak for Hire. This program came to you transcribed from Hollywood. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Don't you think you're being a little obvious? Don't you think she rates it, Markham? <laughs> Have you ever seen a more beautiful woman? You've been staring at her for an hour. Is our foremost private investigator doing some really private investigating? That is a leading question, Markham. <laughs> the district attorney should know better than to prompt a witness. Besides, you haven't conceded that she's beautiful. I concede. <laughs> oh, she's much prettier than that, my friend. <laughs> Besides, I'm certain she's been trying to attract my attention. Vance, she's dining with a gentleman. Both of them seem to me to be minding their own business. Are you sure you're not using a little hopeful imagination? Quite. Do you know the man she's with by any chance? No, I don't. Fact is, I can't make out his face very well. I can see a scar on it. I imagine he's about 40. And he's relatively bald and quite stocky. There's something familiar about him. And there's something very lovely about his blonde companion. Yes, there is. I think she's... Markham, did you see that? Did I see what? They're leaving, and I could swear she indicated she wanted me to follow her. You intend to go after her? Yes. Vance, wars have been fought over less. <laughs> <laughs> well, our check is paid. Let's go. They just passed the head waiter. He 
can probably catch them in the foyer before they get into the street. All right, but after we do catch them, then what? That all depends on whether I did get a signal from the lady. Well, here we are. Too late, Vance. They've already gone out the street door. Mm. Oh, no, no, the man is still here. You see that chap, the one with the scar? Oh, there he is, sitting over there in that chair. Yeah, the man is still here. That's the breaks I get. <laughs> Come with me a minute, will you? Right. I beg your pardon, sir. Well, what is it? The young lady you were dining with. Would you mind telling me where she is? What are you talking about? He's talking about the young lady you were dining with. We've been watching the two of you inside for over an hour. I'm very sorry, but I'm afraid you gentlemen were mistaken. What do you mean? I haven't been with any young lady all evening. Tell the sergeant what you told me. No, I, I can't. I can't talk. What's going on, Williams? What is all this? Well, this is Miss George Foster, sergeant. Foster, eh? Was her husband who was murdered a couple of hours ago? That's right. Sergeant Heath is up at her house now, looking the place over. I found her on my beat, crying, just like she is now. So I brought her here to headquarters. I see. Uh, Mrs. Foster. Uh, Mrs. Foster. You want to take it easy, Mrs. Foster. Let Officer Williams take you back to your house. No, no, no. I don't want to go back there. I don't ever want to go back. My husband was shot. I saw him shoot my husband. I don't ever want to go back to that house. You saw who shot your husband, Mrs. Foster? Did you know the man? No, no, I didn't. Can you describe him? Yes. Yes, I know exactly what it looks like. Well, that'll help us find him. Uh, Williams, take down the description Mrs. Foster gives you. Then take her into the rogues gallery and see if she can find the man in our files. We're liable to crack this case without leaving headquarters. Hello, Final Vance speaking. This is Markham Vance. Are you entirely recovered from that little restaurant scene last night? Not quite. I'd hate to believe that girl wasn't attractive enough to stay in my memory overnight. Don't tell me you found out something about her. No, that isn't the reason for my call. A man named Foster was murdered last evening, Vance, just about the time we were having dinner. Between 7 and 8 o'clock, you mean? Yes, his wife saw the killing, was able to describe the man who fired the shot. More than that, she made a positive identification from a rogues gallery photograph. The killer was a man named Norman James. Really? Yes, really. Well, you're entitled to an easy case once in a while, Markham. This sounds as if you have one. Does it? Well, doesn't it? Listen, the man Mrs. Foster positively identifies as having killed her husband at 7.30 last night is the man we watched every minute between 7 and 8. The man who was dining with that beautiful blonde. <laughs> on a red nine? A black ten? A black eight. Look, beautiful. Babies can play solitaire. Why can't you? Maybe because I'm not a baby. What goes on a red queen? A yellow pumpkin. What? Don't bother me. I'm busy. I'm reading. It's a very good picture of you in the papers, Norman. Ah, it's not so good. Oh, I think it's beautiful. Shows that scar on your face so clear. Daddy. Now, what is it? 
That Mr. Vance you told me to make eyes at in the restaurant's awful cute. That Mr. Vance happens to be awful smart. You make sure you never talk to him, never see him again. You understand that? But he doesn't know who I am. How could I ever talk to him or see him? You know who he is. Sure. You could go to see him. Only, baby, you're not that stupid, are you? Who says I'm stupid? You do, every time you open your mouth. What? This newspaper says that I'm going to be arrested for murder. Because of you, the district attorney and Philo Vance are going to be my alibi. They'll swear they saw me in the restaurant with you at the time George Foster was shot. Now, Mrs. Foster, please calm down for just one moment. You seem to have made a terrible mistake. It wasn't a mistake, Mr. Markham. I swear it wasn't. I saw the man who killed my husband. It, it was this Norman James, the man whose picture I picked out from the police files. But Mrs. I Foster... I couldn't have been mistaken. I saw him. I'll never forget his face when he shot my husband. He did it, I tell you. He did it. Mrs. Foster, I dislike saying this to you, but it would be physically impossible for him to be in the restaurant where I saw him between oh. 7 and 8 o'clock and at your house killing your husband at the very same time. Now, wouldn't it? I don't know, and I don't care. And there is a possibility, of course, that Norman James had a twin brother, in which case I can figure out what happened. We're checking into his background now. Uh, look, Mr. Markham, you're the district attorney. You, you, you know all about murders and alibis and all that sort of thing. I don't know anything about them. All I know is my husband was killed. And I saw the man who did it. And that man was Norman James. I swear it was Norman James. I don't doubt either your sincerity or your identification, Mrs. Foster, but there are certain... Oh, excuse me. Come in. Mr. Markham? Yes, Williams, what is it? We made a thorough check on Norman James' background, Mr. Markham. He was an only child. No brothers or sisters, twin or any other kind. That's definite. I see. Uh, thank you, Williams. All right. Well, now what? So the man had no twin brother. I, I, I saw him kill my husband. And you say you saw him in the restaurant at the same time. I not only saw him, I spoke to him in the foyer. Well, well then what does this mean? Mrs. Foster, I say to you in all sincerity... I wish I knew. Daddy, I've got it. What? A black two goes on a red three, right? Betty, baby, you're a genius. Then take me out somewhere for dinner. Geniuses get hungry, too, you know. You're going to stay right here in your apartment. You'll have your dinner sent in. You're not going to move out of this place until I say so. Why do I have to stay right here in my apartment? Why can't I go out? You can go out during the day, but keep away from any place where a man might see you. Oh? I don't want Philo Vance tracking you down. I don't want them talking to you. I never talk to strangers. Somehow, Betty Baby, what you have makes strangers talk to you. Hmm? Right now, I'm on Easy Street. Nobody's got a thing on me. And except for one little detail, I'm completely in the clear. Hey, who could that be? Could be the detail I was talking about. Right on time, too. I'll go to the door. You take my gun out of my top coat pocket. Uh -huh. You'll find a silencer in the other pocket. Screw down the end. Uh, which end? Never mind. I'll do it myself. Oh, I... I'm coming. Hold everything. I'll get your gun and silencer out. You can put it on yourself. All right, all right. Hi. Hi. You know, Betty. Sure. Pleased to meet you. You know that guy, dope. Well, James, you know why I'm here? I most certainly do, and you're right on time. You came for the payoff, right? That's right. Here's the gun and silencer, Dad. What's that for? Nothing. I just want to keep them in my suit pocket, that's all. 
How much would you say I owed you? What you promised? $5,000. Your life is worth that, isn't it? Yes, it is. But your life isn't. Hey, don't! Daddy, is he dead? Wait a minute while I make sure. Yeah, he's dead all right. Gee, alive one minute and dead the next. That's life, isn't it? Yes, my brilliant accomplice, it is. You know, Daddy, when you said for me to get you that gun, I was scared. Why? I thought maybe you were going to kill me. Why would I kill you, genius? Why? Yeah. Well, because. Because I know too much. We're almost to the morgue, Vance. You want to tell me now why you developed a sudden interest in a very ordinary shooting? Yes, Markham. You called me a little while ago to tell me that an ex-heavyweight fighter named Joe Stockton had been found shot to death. That's right. After quitting the ring, Stockton became a strong-arm man for a racket gang. This sounded to me like just an ordinary gangland rub-out. I called you only because I'd promised to advise you of anything that happened since George Foster was killed. That, of course, is the mysterious murder that has me confused. You've got a lot of company. Oh? Mrs. Foster positively identifies Norman James as her husband's murderer. And we saw James in a restaurant at the time of the murder. Now, how can that be? It can be very easily. It can? Yes. Well, maybe you'd better tell me as long as it's so easy. Well, this Joe Stockton, the one whose body we're going to see, he's about five feet ten. Just about. Heavy set. Yes, why? Practically bald, about forty. Why, yes. How did you know? I didn't know. I merely surmised. Oh. And I also more than surmise now that I can give you the details of how Norman James could have killed George Foster. One more question. Did Stockton have a scar on his cheek? Definitely not. Oh. What's the O for? It's for the sudden collapse of a beautiful theory. I take back all my previous questions, Markham. They mean absolutely nothing now. I'm afraid I don't know how Norman James could be in two places at once after all. Or do I know how I can ever again find that beautiful blonde? This is District Attorney Markham. The Scarface murder case opened with the killing of George Foster. Foster's wife, who saw the murder, positively identifies Norman James, still at liberty, as her husband's killer. But Vance and I are certain we saw James in a restaurant at the time of the murder. The killing of a petty racket strong-arm man proves no clue, even though Philo Vance believed it might at first. At the moment, Vance and I are questioning Mrs. Foster again. Neither Mr. Markham nor I are doubting you, Mrs. Foster. But what reason did Norman James have to kill your husband? Not reason, reason. Is the reason important? I saw him do it. Isn't that enough? Not with the situation we find ourselves in, Mrs. Foster. Well... It'll be your word against his, and he has us to back up his alibi. Perhaps your giving us a reason for his killing your husband might help us. All right. 
My husband borrowed money from Norman James. I never knew his name, but I'd seen his face when he came to the house. My husband was supposed to pay him a very high interest rate, and he couldn't pay it. He couldn't pay James back, so he was killed. So that's Norman James's racket. That's right. Mm. That second murder could have explained all this so easily, Markham. But it didn't. What are we going to do to break James's alibi, Vance? If I could find that blonde he was with at the restaurant, that might do it. I don't see how. I do, but it's too early for me to explain... Lend me an officer from the homicide department, a telephone book, and I might be able to locate her. You don't know her name? No, nor where she lives. But let me have what I asked for, and there's still a chance I can trace her for you. For me? No, I beg your pardon. For both of us. That's all, sir. Shave, haircut, massage, all finished. Pay the cashier, will you, please? Yes. Yeah. Who's next, please? I am, Charlie. Ah, oh, it's you, Mr. James. Uh, you want to shave, maybe? I want something, Charlie. But there's no maybe about it. You owe me a hundred bucks. I want the hundred or ten bucks interest. Uh, Mr. James, I wanted to ask you something. Things were a little tough. They're tough for me, too. You wanted the money, you asked me for it. You got it. You know you'd have to pay me, didn't you? Yes. Well, what are you waiting for? I haven't got it, Mr. James. Maybe I'll have it for you tomorrow. Tomorrow, huh? Yeah, tomorrow, sure. Give me another day, will you, Mr. James? Just one more day. Okay. That'll be two bucks more interest for that extra day. I'll be back tomorrow about this time. Better have the money, Charlie. Or the interest. I'll try. If it'll help any in your trying. Remember what happened to George Foster. He owed me money and he didn't pay. So I paid him off. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, any luck, Williams? No, Mr. Vance. Any more numbers for me to call? There are only about three more on my list. I think I'll make the next call myself. Okay, you try for luck. Here's the phone. Thanks. Let's see. We called about 30 numbers, didn't we, Mr. Vance? So far, yes. I'm sure this has to work. Oh, maybe if I knew what you were trying to do... Shh. How do you do? My name is Philo Vance. I'm trying to find a girl. I wish you luck, brother. Happy hunting. Oh, just a moment, please. I'm hoping that this particular girl is one of your customers. Well, what's her name? Well, I don't know. Oh, you're a big help. What's she look like? She's blonde. That's big news. I'd say she was the kind of girl who'd come into your establishment about three times a week. Does that help any? Well, it might. Give me a little bit more to work on. She's about five foot eight, very attractive... Mm -hmm. Very smart dresser. Her hair is blonde, but not golden. Platinum, huh? Dark eyebrows, nice mouth, gray eyes? Mm, well, I don't know what color her eyes are. Uh, do you know somebody that answers that description? Yes. Well, that's fine. <laughs> Does that make me a landmark for tourists? You are. As far as I'm concerned, I'm coming down to see you right away. <laughs> District Attorney, you've got to help me. Norman James will kill me, just like he killed George Foster. He'll kill me. I know, Charlie. I heard you. You're a barber, and you borrowed money from James and can't pay him back. Is that it? Well, he lends money to a lot of us people. Barbers, newsstand men, taxi drivers. But we have no security, so he charges us high interest. And when we don't pay, he has us beaten up. He killed George Foster. He told me he did. 
You've got to protect me. You've got to arrest him. I could arrest him, of course. I could have had him arrested when Foster's wife identified him for us. But I'm sure I can't make a charge stick against him. Well, what does that mean? That he can take me out and kill me if he wants? No, I'll see that you're protected all day tomorrow and up until the time when Philo Vance gets the evidence he needs against James. Why can't you arrest him? Why don't you put him in jail? He threatened me, didn't he? Charging those high rates of interest is illegal, isn't it? Why can't you arrest him? Perhaps I will. In any event, Charlie, you have nothing to worry about. I give you my word that you won't be bothered by Norman James again. Daddy. Oh, bother me, will you? <laughs> A lot of men say I bother them. Isn't that silly? Everything they put in your face, they left out in your head, kid. I bet you don't think I have any brains. That's the only bet you ever made that you had a chance of winning. What do you want? I want to go out. With two. The beauty parlor, what do you think? Gee, you're stupid. Yeah, I know. You've been to the beauty parlor once this week already. You said I could go anyplace where there weren't any men, didn't you? Well... Well, there's no men in a beauty parlor except Antoine. He just does my hair. You need wake on the inside of your head, kid. Oh, can I go, Daddy? It's only right down the street. I'll be back in a couple of hours. It doesn't take long for my hair to dry. Okay, okay, go ahead. You'll pester me to death if I don't let oh, you. Oh, thanks. I want to go down to see Charlie the Bobby. You'll sneak out anyhow. <laughs> so go ahead. I'll pick you up there. Okay. What are you going to have done? I think I'll have my hair just a shade lighter. Don't you think that'll be becoming? I guess Just so. a shade lighter. I don't know. Where I sit, you're lightheaded enough already. You know something? I don't mind sitting under this hair dryer at all. Not a bit. I am glad, madame. Madame? Yes. I'm not a madame. I'm more of a... Whatever it is that means I'm younger. Yes, miss. You know, you're cheating me. You ain't French. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I like you. I like you as well as I liked Antoine. Except your mustache is cuter. <laughs> I think I'll have you every time I come in here. I'm a very good tipper. Oh, I'm sure you are. Oh, I'm sleepy. Noise from that dryer makes me sleepy. <laughs> well, why not sleep a little then? I can't. Noise from the dryer keeps me awake. Oh. Can you play solitaire? Mm, I imagine so. I just learned to play. That's quite an achievement. <laughs> sure, amazed Daddy. Daddy? Oh, forgot you're new here. I met Mr. James. He's waiting for me downstairs. I hope he won't mind waiting a little longer. He'll wait. Got a lot of patience. He has to have with me. The only time he doesn't have any patience is when he's jealous. Oh, he's jealous? I'll say. He killed a guy just because he took me out once. How do you like that? Joe Stockton? That's a guy? Uh-huh. Say, you read the papers, don't you? So do I. Gee, the things you can learn. Yes, I know. From other things besides newspapers. What? Oh, it doesn't matter. You say your friend Mr. James is waiting for you downstairs? Yeah, but he won't mind. Well, we won't keep him waiting long. I'll just turn the dryer up a little so we can get everything over in a hurry. There's Daddy. I mean, Mr. James. That's nice. Standing over there in the doorway waiting for me, just like I said he would be. Oh, thank you very much for doing my hair so well. Oh, it's quite all right. 
And I think I want a word with your daddy. Sure, I'll get him. Daddy! Yeah, baby? Come on over here. Look, kid, let's get moving. We got a... This nice man wants to speak to you. He just did my hair. Don't you think it looks beautiful? Hello, James. We meet again. You're Philo Vance. That's right. And after what your friend here just told me, I think I've got all I need to turn you over to the district attorney. After what I told you, I didn't tell you anything. Besides, I saw Philo Vance in the restaurant. He didn't have a mustache. The one this guy's wearing comes off. Can't you see? It's a phony. Better you dope I could beat I don't think you can do anything at all, James, except come with me to see Mr. Markham. That's one man's opinion. Betty talked you're smart enough to put everything together. I'm getting out of here. I doubt that. Okay, Vance, let's play rough. All All right. right. Oh, you killed him, Vance. You killed Daddy. No, my dear, I didn't. I just knocked him out. I didn't kill him. I wouldn't dream of sparing the state all that trouble. I'm a patient man, Vance, a very patient man, but I'm also a very curious one. Now, we know from his confession and, and from what his girl Betty told us that Norman James did kill George Foster and later the ex-prize fighter Joe Stockton. But we did see James in the restaurant at the time Foster was killed. Did we? Of course we did. He was sitting over in a corner with his girl. The girl was making eyes at you, uh, you claimed. Then they left, we followed, and there was James sitting in the foyer. Hmm. Markham, do you remember why I thought the prize fighter Joe Stockton would have a scar on his cheek when we were en route to the morgue to identify him? Yes, but he didn't have. I told you that. It was Joe Stockton who was in the restaurant, Markham, not Norman James. Oh, don't tell me that. I spoke to James myself. So did you, in the foyer. Oh, that was Norman James. But the man in the restaurant, the one we saw with the girl between seven and eight, was Joe Stockton. Stockton? He was built like James sat in the shadows so we couldn't really see his face, and he made sure we noticed the scar on it. You mean the scar was just makeup that was put on Joe's cheek? Exactly. Now, here's what happened. The girl had instructions to attract my attention. Your attention, that is, because you're the district attorney, and you were to be Norman James' alibi. I see. It was all set up for us to follow the two of them out the door. Then they were to disappear into the street, and Norman James was to be found by us seated in the restaurant foyer. He denied there had been a girl with him to intrigue us, to make sure we remembered him. That was the plan, and it worked. Yes. You see, James had time to kill George Foster between 7 and 8 and get to the restaurant afterwards, just as we were leaving. And then later, James had to kill Joe because of the possibility that Joe would either blackmail him or talk in the future. That's right. Huh? It was a very clever plan, and it almost worked. I figured the girl would be a key to all of this, and I also knew that a girl such as she would be a beauty parlor addict. She'd go to one several times a week probably a swanky one. So I called all the better beauty parlors in Midtown and finally found the right one. You most certainly did. That was quite a trick, finding a girl in a big city without knowing anything about her. Thank you. After I found her, I also found a way of making her talk. The result, you know. She put Norman James right in the middle of a double murder rap. Put him in the middle and us at the end of the Scarface murder case. <laughs> 